um, agreeing to sleep through the sunrise service and come to this 7.30 service instead. Uh, I do appreciate that. I was handed the uh, attendance numbers from last year and saw there were 106 people at this service and 1,100 at the 11 o'clock service. So it really does uh, help us for you to be here uh, now. And we got a lot more room. Um, I'm going to uh, open by reading uh, an extended section out of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. As you uh, may know, Paul was uh, initially a, a critic of the Christian faith, not just a disbeliever, but very actively hostile to those who believed, and at least in one occasion had uh, people put to death because of their faith in Christ. But he then became uh, a Christ follower himself after a dramatic conversion and one of the leaders of the church. And he is writing to um, a group of Christians that live in a Greek city, a little Greek coastal town, that has a reputation for being fairly wild, uh, perhaps not Las Vegas wild, but college town wild. And, um, and they have lots of problems and challenges. And this letter that he writes to them has dealt with a wide a range of topics. He has started about relationships, and so it's love and sex and marriage and divorce. He's talked about food. He's talked about lawsuits. He's been all over the place. And then at the end of this letter... He enters into uh, a debate that they are having over the nature of eternal life. Uh, One of the best-known passages in the New Testament is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The question that they were wrestling with is, what kind of everlasting life? What does this everlasting life look like? More specifically, what are we like in everlasting life? The Corinthians were Greeks. They had read Plato. Consequently, they did not believe in a physical resurrection. Plato didn't like the physical world, and so there were a lot of Corinthian Christians who were buying into this idea that after death, we live forever in some spiritual dimension only. And Paul says, no, that's not the claim. Christ rose physically from the grave. The tomb was empty except for the grave clothes. His body came back to life in, in, a, in a different kind of way. It was the same body, but it was, it was different. And it was now eternal. And, and that is our hope. And in the context of arguing for the nature of the resurrection body, Paul goes all in on the resurrection itself and sets up a classic if-then argument. If Christ rose from the dead then we have every reason to believe everything else that he said, and we follow him. If he didn't rise from the dead, then there isn't any reason to think that anything he says is true. He's not a good teacher. He's not a great moral leader. He's a con man. The the early church was very clear. Jesus is either God or he's a bad man. And so that's the nature of the argument that Paul gives us. And I want to read this to you now, 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, okay, the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his son, okay, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And we have a little section here where Paul is sort of chastising himself because of the way he had had Christians killed. So he says, I am the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Let me be really clear that the hope of Easter is not wrapped up in the idea that uh, spring is here and the flowers are blooming and the circle of life is rolling on again. And the hope of Easter is not that when you die, you will live on in the hearts and minds of those who love you. And it's not even the idea that when you die, you will forever exist in some spiritual dimension. The hope of Easter, which is grounded in Jesus Christ, is that he died for our sins, and that at his death, his body and his soul separated, as will ours, and his body went into the ground, even as his soul or his spirit lived on, but after three days, God raised him, his body, from the dead, and gave him a, a, an eternal resurrection body, and the hope the promise of eternal life. The, the, the hope that we have is for a physical resurrection that will go on and on again. The claim of the Christian faith is that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, that in this resurrection he defeated death, he didn't destroy it yet, but he will. 
And furthermore, his resurrection is offered as proof that everything else that he said and claimed was true. That is what we gather around. And what I'd like to do is, is just set before you this morning seven ideas, observations, claims that the Apostle Paul is making grounded out of this passage that we have read. And the first one is, is the basic one that I've already sort of expressed. Jesus Christ is God. The Bible doesn't, doesn't really try to prove that God exists. Genesis 1 opens, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no proof that God exists. It's just assumed. And we see in Romans chapter 1 that, uh, that Paul argues that we all know that God exists. We may deny that truth. We may suppress it. But, but there's no ultimately getting around it. We all know that God exists. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time trying to prove this point. Instead, it spends a lot of time arguing that Jesus Christ is God. That he is, that he is equal to the Father. That he is completely divine. Now, <clears throat> Christ himself makes all kinds of very bold claims to this end. We have this whole series of I am passages from Christ. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. I am the resurrection and the life. If uh, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Some people think that Jesus is a sort of self-effacing prophet of peace uh, who was very humble and sort of a, 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 a juxtaposition of an eagle scout and Mr. Rogers, just soft-spoken, meek. It's not a particularly accurate understanding of Christ. He's remarkably humble. No one, no one can match him for humility. He is God himself and he... He agrees to condescend to become a man. He lives infinitely below his station. He is simple even as a man. But he makes the most outrageous claims. When, when uh, the religious leader came to him and said, What must I do to be saved? Christ pointed to himself. He doesn't say, Go to church or be good or pray. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. When he, when he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman and she figures out that he's a prophet, she decides to ask him some, some of the questions, the religious questions that were being debated at the time. Jesus cuts through all of that. It's not, those are not important. And he says, what you need to know is that I in the living water. And if you will drink from me, you will never be thirsty. Right? Christ makes the most outrageous claims about himself. The New Testament argues that Jesus Christ is God. He, he is one with the Father. He accepts worship due to God. He forgives sins in a way that only God could forgive sins. Point number one is that Jesus is God. Point number two is that Jesus is eternal. 
when it, when it comes to Christ, the story doesn't be- begin at Christmas. It does not begin with the incarnation. Christ is eternal. Genesis 1 opens, in the beginning, God created. John 1, which is talking about Christ, opens, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The, the parallelism here between, between John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1 is not an accident. It is reinforcing the idea that Jesus is God and that he was there at the very beginning. As the early church used to, to say, there never was a day before Christ. We don't um, often sing the Gloria Patri here. I grew up in a church where we sang it uh, many Sundays. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. It was done in a very slow, sort of august, reverential uh, cadence. Uh, It actually was written as a fight song, and it was arguing that Christ is equal with the Father and has always existed. So it was glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it hasn't changed. Christ was in the very beginning. Jesus Christ is eternal. Point number three, he became a man. Jesus was God. He became the God-man. At the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, somehow, in some mysterious way, Christ added manhood to godhood. While remaining fully God, he became fully man. He became the God-man. He's different. Because he's eternal, his, his conception was done without a father. Right? He, 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 there was a virgin birth or a, a virgin conception because for us, our life begins at conception, but Christ's life, he has always existed and, and he needed to bypass the sin that is common to the rest of us. So he became a man in this unique way and, and now and forever forward exists as fully God and fully man at the same time. Theologians refer to this as the the hypostatic union, the union of two stases. It's it's a mystery, every bit as profound as uh, the Trinity. We cannot comprehend it. As Augustine said, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. If you think you understand fully the nature of God, you're wrong, because we cannot. But Jesus Christ was and is God, is eternal. He became a man. He did this, point number four, for us. Christ became the God-man for us. And he came and lived among us with with a variety of of assignments to fulfill. He was here to teach uh, about how to live as an example and, and in what he taught. And we see from Christ's life what a perfect life is supposed to look like. 
And we see his care for others, especially the poor. We see the, his concern with justice. We see how he lived. That was that he was teaching us what life is supposed to look like. Additionally, he was, he was fulfilling prophecy. Prophecy is the, the history of the future. One of the ways that God... Um, one of the ways that God proved that he was God was by having his prophets predict things that would happen. And then when they happened, and there was a 100% uh, statistical confirmation of what they said was going to happen, was going to happen, that's how you knew you had a prophet of God, not somebody who was just guessing. Okay? So they had to be 100% correct. And God did this to, to show us that we have good reason to trust his plan. Well, part of what he did is he gave us a whole lot of, uh, of descriptions about what the Messiah would look like, what the rescuer would look like, what his plan, how it was ultimately going to unfold. And, and Jesus is central to God's plan, and so Christ came, and in one sense he came in order to fulfill all of these prophecies. Christ also came in order to reveal God to us. The writer of Hebrews tells us that, that there is no higher revelation of the character and nature of God the Father than God the Son. There are, there are a number of things that Christ came to earth to do. But the chief among them was to die for us. Christ became a man so that he could represent us in death. When they asked Christ, why did you come? He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. God is just, and just like a just judge cannot let guilty people go free, a just God cannot let guilty people go free, somebody has to pay for the debt. Somebody has to atone. Somebody has to make this right. God takes that on himself to make our debt good. And he does that through the death of Christ. Jesus is our substitute in death. And, and he is the sacrifice that atones for our sin. And those who stand in Christ, those who, those who identify with Christ, those who repent... Who, who acknowledge that they are guilty and sinful and that they need a Savior and that there is nobody else better than Christ and that they want to stand in Christ, they want Christ's life to count for them, then those people who make a decision for Christ get to give Christ their guilt and moral debt and receive back from him the goodness of his life this, his righteousness is credited to our account. This is the great exchange that Paul talks about. Christ came to do many things, but principally he came to die so that we could gain eternal life. Point number five. He rose again on the third day. Christ was, was raised by his Father, and in this he defeated death, and he became the firstborn of the dead, or the first fruits of the dead. There were other people before Christ who had died and been brought back to life. Christ had brought back Lazarus. 
But, but that's not a resurrection. That was just a resuscitation. Lazarus was going to die again. Today, many people pass away, and in the first minutes, the, the doctors and nurses are able to bring them back. Okay? That's not a resurrection. That's a, that, again, they will die again. But Christ came as the first fruits, as a pledge of what is to come, as, as one who has defeated death and been given an eternal body. It is alike the body that he had, and yet it is different. We call it the self-same body. Sometimes they recognized Christ in his post-resurrection appearances. Sometimes they didn't. It was, he was alike and yet slightly different. Point number six. Christ's resurrection served to confirm his claims. Christ went into the, into the grave on Friday. He rose again on that first Easter morning. And this resurrection, along with many other things, are offered to us as confirmation that Christ is who he claimed to be. We are not expected to believe on the basis of nothing. We're not expected to believe without any evidence. So we have numerous pieces of evidence. First of all, we have, we have the remarkable life that Christ lived. There is no life like Christ's. And we have the, the, the moral wisdom of Christ. Right, this is a 30-year-old carpenter who has given us what is virtually universally acknowledged as the greatest ethical system that we have. The most, he's the most influential person. He's the most influential intellectual the world has ever known. More books have been written about him. More books have been written about what he taught than anyone else, than anything anyone else has taught. More doctoral dissertations have been devoted to studying the life of Christ and his teaching. We can look and just say he's, the, the quality of his life and what he taught off the charts. Additionally, we have the miracles of Christ. And I realize that it, it, it's popular to sort of dismiss them. I, I would suggest that it's a little bit arrogant from 2,000 years away to dismiss the, the, the first-hand eyewitness accounts of other people. And, and to suggest that we know better than those who were there and who are reporting what they saw. But I would also challenge you, if you're, if you're skeptical of the miracles, to say, what would you expect God in the flesh to do? Because the remarkable thing about the miracles, it's pretty obvious when you, when you just start to pay attention to them. The first thing that you notice is not that, that he did so many miracles. The, the first thing is that he did so few. I mean, he has all this power, and he, he does remarkably little with it. But when you step back, you realize that the, the collective message that's being given here is that he has power over sickness, and he has power over evil, and he has power over nature, and he has power over death, which is what you would expect from God as a man. So we, we have his life, we have his teaching, we have the miracles Additionally, we have the prophecy that he fulfilled. And this, by the way, is not easy to dismiss. 
Uh, again, all these things that were said hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. The, the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem, and he's going to be born a descendant of David, and, and he's going he's to be called these names, and he's going to grow up in Nazareth, and he's going to suffer and die, and he's going to die this way, and none of his bones are going to be broken, and he's going to be buried with the rich man, right? You put all of these all of these descriptions together, the likelihood that anyone can fulfill those is to say that it's astronomical does not begin to do credit to, to how astronomical it is. I, I heard a couple weeks ago there's this you know, $600 million lottery, and they're saying um, your odds of winning. My odds of winning were zero because you have to play to win. But I, my, uh, they said the odds, if you buy a ticket of winning, you're 17 times more likely to get hit by lightning than you are if you bought a ticket to win this lottery. Okay? Well, you are 17 trillion times more likely to win that lottery than some person is to fulfill all of the prophecies that have been made about Christ. These, these are here, right, because we're not asked to believe on the basis of nothing. There is good evidence that the crowning signature miracle of Christ is that he conquered death. Right? He came back to life as he said he would. He did just what he said. Destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. Christ was saying that he would come back to life, and that is what he did. Now, <clears throat> we could go on about um, the, the documentation that we have around the resurrection. Uh, it's worth noting that all the critics concede it. The Jewish historians, Roman historians, everybody agrees the tomb is empty, and there's all these people that, that claim that they saw Christ alive, and this is what started the Christian faith. And, and if we had hours, we could, we could look at all the different options. I spent a semester in graduate school just focused on the resurrection and reading 2,000 years of arguments about what happened to the body. How did the tomb get empty? Where did the body go? What are the, what are the possibilities? And you might know some people say, well, he didn't really die. Others say, well, somebody stole the body. It was the disciples. It was the religious leaders. Okay, so you, just, you can step back and you can look at these options. For the record, um, if, you, if you wonder that maybe he didn't die, I would commend uh, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. Uh, the Romans were grimly efficient in the task of execution. And if you want more, 1986 uh, issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association has a, almost a book-length article in which they asked three pathologists to study the crucifixion accounts and to weigh in on whether or not Christ might have survived it. And their, their professional opinion, again, Journal of American Medical Association, is zero chance that this man was still alive. We could look at the idea that the disciples stole the body, right? Which is just ridiculous on the face of it. Whatever you're going to say about the disciples, it's clear they believed that the man rose from the dead. They could be wrong, but they believed that he rose from the dead. That's the only way you can explain the transformation in their life from keystone cops to a revolutionary force that the, that the Roman authorities cannot 
get to be quiet. And in terms of the, the Jewish leaders or the Roman leaders stealing the body, that, again, that misses the whole point that they were trying to stop this from spreading. They had the means, they had the motivation, and they had the opportunity to produce the body if they took it. To put it in a wheelbarrow, go back out in the middle of Jerusalem and say, game's over, here's the body. He's not alive. But he didn't. They didn't. And I would just, again, remind you, it's not just that the tomb was empty. The grave clothes were there. There were all manner of people who claimed to have seen him alive. That's what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 15. They saw him alive, and Paul gives names. Talk to Peter, talk to Mary, talk to the twelve, talk to 500, most of whom are still living. Go talk to them. Anthony Flew recently passed away, was the leading uh, atheist for the last 40 years. If there was a debate in a college campus about atheism, chances are Anthony Flew was the guy that was going to be arguing that there was no God. Anthony Flew passed away a year ago. Before passing away, the last few years of his life, he said, I'm wrong. I now believe on the basis of the scientific evidence that God exists. And he said, and I will say this, the resurrection accounts is the best attested miracle claim anywhere of any time, any claim. Right? We, we have got great evidence to believe that Christ rose from the dead. And I, finally, I would simply say, please remember, we're not talking about you rising from the dead or me rising from the dead. We are talking about the most amazing, influential, brilliant, moral teacher who was a miracle-working, prophecy-fulfilling servant who claimed to be God, who said that he was going to come back to life. This is altogether different category than you or I rising from the dead. Which leads to the final point. Either this story is true or it's not. It's Please, since the Enlightenment, there has been this this suggestion that with religious claims, it's not whether it's true or not. The question is whether it's true in your heart or not. That is not what Paul is arguing. He says either Christ rose from the dead or he didn't. If he did, then we have every reason to believe that he is God. And we ought to follow him with everything else. But if he didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't matter what you think in your heart. Then your faith is in vain. He either conquered the grave or he didn't. I am persuaded on the basis of Christ's teaching, on the basis of his fulfillment of prophecy, on the basis of the quality of his life, on the changed lives of the disciples, on the amazing fulfillment of prophecy, on answered prayers in my own life, on the love and grace that he has shown to me, and on the empty tomb that Christ is alive. And I'm not alone in making that, um, that uh, declaration. You heard from Oren. You heard Oren say, I was making stuff up. I was trying to figure this out on my own. That's not the way forward. God has revealed himself to us in Christ. Jesus Christ, God. He is eternal. He became the God-man at the incarnation. He did this 
for us. He died on the cross for you. He rose again on the third day. His resurrection, along with a bunch of other things, proves that all his claims are true. And I would commend to you, go all in. That go all in in following Christ. There is many things that Christianity can be. Moderately important is not one of them. If it's true, then follow him. And if you're convinced that he didn't rise, then be consistent and walk away because he's not a great moral teacher. He's either God and Savior of the world or he's a bad man. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for the amazing gift that we have in Christ, your Son, and our Lord. We thank you for all the evidence that you have provided in this book that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not hold on to your rights as God, but you humbled yourself, you became a person, and not just a man, but a slave, and not just a slave, but one who went to his death on the cross, that you died for us in our place, took the wrath against sin on yourself, and that you rose again, defeating death as the first fruits of the resurrection Father, I pray that we are all in. I pray especially for those who sort of stand on the border this morning, that you would, in, through your word, through your spirit, just uh, make it clear. They will find no one else like Christ. I want to stand with him. We pray this in his name. Amen.